Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we feature two shows at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. I think this is the first time in 578 episodes that both segments of the program have been at the same museum. Wow. First up, I'll talk with Diana Tweet. She's the curator of Bob Thompson, This House is Mine, a retrospective of Thompson's brief but hugely productive career. It's at the Hammer through January 8th, 2023. The Hammer's presentation was coordinated by Aaron Cristobal with Vanessa Arismendi. An outstanding catalog was published by the Colby College Museum of Art, which organized the exhibition. IndieBound and Amazon offer the catalog for about $45. On the second segment, Picasso cut papers, also at the Hammer. Diana Tweet, after the break. Big news. After two-plus years of pandemic, live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings are back. I'm thrilled to share that we'll be taping a program with the artist Sheila Prebright at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens on Thursday, December 8th. Showtime is 5.30 p.m. Bright's work is included in the Georgia Museum of Art exhibition Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund. I'm looking forward to talking with Bright about all kinds of things including her hashtag 1960Now photographic series, which reflects on the fight for racial equity from 1960 to the present day and combines portraits of social justice activists past and present with documentary images from recent protests in the United States. That work has been on view at museums and galleries all over the country, including in Atlanta, New York City, Durham, Charlottesville, and plenty more. And this fall, you can also see Bright's work in Free as they want to be, artists committed to memory, at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. The exhibition is part of Cincy's Photo Focus Biennial. Sheila Prebright on the Modern Art Notes podcast on Thursday, December 8th at the Georgia Museum of Art. Hope to see you there. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Alberto Giacometti, Towards the Ultimate Figure. This touring exhibition showcases an ensemble of 60 masterpieces from the post-war years, 1945 to 66. At a time when abstract art was starting to become ubiquitous, Giacometti became a defining artist of modernism as he reasserted the validity of the figure. See his work in 12 thematic sections that illuminate his focus on the human form and the development of his abstract figures. Now on view through February 12th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Giacometti. Nasher Sculpture Center presents... Matthew Ronay, The Crack, The Swell, An Earth, An Ode, an exhibition that transports you into a surreal world. Brooklyn-based artist Matthew Ronay combines vivid wood sculptures, poetry, biology, and nature into an otherworldly experience. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. And we're back. Diana Tweet, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Tyler. One of the subjects of this exhibition, perhaps the core subject, is Bob Thompson's relationship with the United States and how he examined the United States in art that used European influences and colors and tropes and compositions and all that as his in his address of the United States. So we'll come to that second part in a bit. But first, help us understand the Kentucky-born Thompson's relationship with his native country. So absolutely. To start, I think it's important to understand Thompson's childhood. 
He grew up in Kentucky and from a very early age was not only incredibly artistic, but very active. So his mother loves to describe him as very athletic, someone who had a, you know, was on a varsity team, won a golf championship, played basketball. He really was kind of an all-American young person who, by his own account, starts to really express himself visually through artwork. And so he's taking down some of the window shades in the house, which you can imagine make a nice blank canvas for a, <laughs> a young person. And he's using them as a support to, to draw and paint on. And, you know, I think he is nurtured really in that by his family. So he's the baby in the house. He has two sisters who are much older and really connects with his father. So the two of them are this loving pair. His family is middle class. His mother's a teacher. At one point, his family runs a country club. At another point, a dry cleaning business. So very stable middle class upbringing until he's 13 years old when his father is killed in an automobile accident. And that really represents this break in the the stability in the the comfort of home for him. His mother comes to depend on him as the man of the household from that point on. And, you know, I think that places a real burden on him. So he sort of attempts to be the responsible son and go to medical school <laughs> at one point to, you know, I think take care of his his mother and his family. And he's, he's living with his sister in Boston when he applies. And, you know, ultimately, he's, this is not true to who he is. So he finds his way back to Louisville and he enrolls at the University of Louisville in the Art Institute, the Height Art Institute, where he finds his, his sort of crowd. And so I think, you know, that is a very American experience. <laughs> it's one of finding your way, I think, through the many things that are, are projected onto you. And he finds within the department at Louisville, you know, an incredible array of thinkers and makers, many of them European emigre artists, scholars of Italian Renaissance art, people who are really suddenly able to kind of, you know, expose him to the world as it were. Does he have experiences in Kentucky or Massachusetts that kind of sour him on on the American experience, both philosophically and lived? Yeah, I mean, I don't think of sour as a, I guess, as a word that I would use in thinking about how he processes the world. I think it's certainly the case that he goes to an incredible high school, the Central High School, that is, you know, a high achieving school for black students at a moment, though, when schools in Louisville are being integrated. So he sort of witnesses that sea change. And he and his friends talk about it being this moment when, you know, for the first time, they're making friends with with people of different races. And, you know, what it just felt like to be an adolescent as that was happening. I think, of course, he's someone who was both sheltered 
by the women in his life from some of that, but also was so perceptive that, you know, he he knew always what was sort of going on around him. And so I don't necessarily think about him as being soured, but really shaped by some of what he observed and the people who he, he I mean, he collected people and he collected all kinds of people. <laughs> so I think, you know, he feels things differently when he decides he wa- will be an artist and he enters those spaces, be they in Provincetown or in New York City. And then in Europe. The exhibition and, and the catalog, which is gobsmackingly terrific, go from, you know, really early pictures, late 1950s, all the way through to Thompson's early death. You know, a, a couple of the early pictures really jumped out at me. Um, a 1960 self-portrait in the studio that's at the Speed in Louisville, and a 1959, I don't know what to call it, a, a reclining murder scene? Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the Nasher at Duke. Both pictures are kind of full of, of hints about where he's going compositionally and his address of violence. What about kind of these early works, works made before his first New York exhibition in 1960 jump out at you? Yeah, and I'll just, I'll certainly talk about those and add, you know, maybe one more work that wasn't in the show, but is one I'm thinking about a lot now. It's a a painting from 1958, and it's called Fearful Insider Number 2. So we reproduce it in the catalog as a figure in connection with one of the essays. But you see a, a dark figure in this kind of blazing orange shirt reaching around the corner of a wall. The wall reads almost as analogous to the vast expanse of a canvas. The figure is partially obscured and standing, we think, in this space with this kind of very diagrammatic window Rothko (laughs) painting, maybe, on the wall adjacent. I think, crucially, an insider and not an outsider. So we might expect that term to apply at this moment as he's just, he's in art school, he's sort of heady with all that he's taking in in his first year at Provincetown. But he's poised between these two spaces on this threshold. And I think really asking himself what it would mean to enter. Can he reveal himself fully within this context? You know, so just as we can't really see this figure, what would it mean to see him kind of fully? And so that for me feels like it's a great expression of the transition that he's undergoing. And I think the the paintings you reference, the self-portrait in the studio is one that feels like he's already come an incredible distance in terms of his self-understanding. So just in the space of two years, I think we can see the kind of assurance with which he can depict himself. It's a very moving, for me, self-portrait in terms of the I think the the pose he's in is one that really perplexes a lot of people. It feels it feels tense but relaxed. It feels like he's sort of introverted and and has his his focus kind of turned inward and yet he's surrounded by all of the 
sort of trappings of his his musical and his artistic production. So, and and but serene, seated, not at work on a canvas. Instead, thinking. And I think I think that's actually for someone who's always described as being this ebullient person in constant motion, making everyone laugh. You know, sort of out on the town that he presents himself in such a composed, thoughtful, contemplative manner here really feels like he's maybe sort of making a, a, a statement about his intentions. And in that painting, the picture on the wall or on a, on a stand behind him already has kind of key elements of what will become many, many, many of his paintings. Vertical elements that pin things, sometimes people in place in his paintings, and then dramatic diagonals that hold everything together. It's quite a statement of, of intent. All, you know, in that untitled 1959 painting of reclining violence, all that is present as well. You know, the, the dramatic and reinforced diagonals, a tree holding things in place. It's all, it's all pretty super. Speaking of violence, boy, that is something that comes up in a lot of paintings across Thompson's entire career. Why is violence a theme to which he returns over and over? Yeah, I think that is one of the questions that the show really tries to raise. You know, that painting from 1959 with the reclining figure that's in the Nasher collection. I think you're right in that it so perfectly encapsulates in the the posture of the reclining figure, the way that his paintings perch on a kind of knife's edge between things. Here, really a figure who is tumbling forward off what feels like an examining table in an incredibly flat composition. So the suggestion of a kind of movement out of an incredibly flattened space, one that's so flat that, you know, in the upper corner, you have what almost amounts to another repetition of that painting within a painting feeling to the way the landscape is shown there. But for me, this really brought out the fact that, you know, the Olympia painting is so prominent in his studio and all of the photographs we see of his studio spaces. But the other, the other sort of piece of, of that in terms of the presentational body or the, the, in this case, you know, I talk about the painting as kind of merging a sort of forensic gaze with the voyeuristic one. And, you know, this notion of a kind of violence that is inherent to the lived experience, right, of, of a black American in the, certainly in the mid 20th century is I think something that he's thinking a lot about, but he's thinking about it as part of a kind of global history of, of human experience. And, you know, he's thinking about it not having been part of that history. So I guess that that for me is, you know, it's something that a number of the authors develop in relationship to several other paintings in the show, in the book. And I can't get away from it, but I also find that, you know, he, before he travels to Europe in 1961, I think there's an explicitness to the violence. It's sort of raw. It kind of inhabits certain formulas that draw upon European painting in the way that this one draws on the Manet and the Giorgione. But it is its own 
thing. It sort of breaks through. And I think what happens once he's in Europe and he's really spending time with some of the, the work that he finds so inspiring is that it's just getting sort of sublimated into some of that more, some of those compositions. And so, you know, you have a painting called The Hanging from 1959. Almost 10 feet wide. <laughs> yeah, which is the largest painting that he makes in his first few years. So obviously, and then a, a very tiny painting called The Execution, which draws upon a Fra Angelico and is, you know, ghastly also. So it's sort of violence at all, all scales. We will come back to more violence because it's there, both present day and mythological. But you, you know, a couple times we've mentioned that, that Thompson has his first New York show in 1960 and that the very next year, 1961, he leaves the United States for Europe. Why does Thompson leave the U.S. and for how long does he stay in Europe? He can't wait to go. So he, he takes a, a boat over with his wife at that point, Carol Plenda. They were married in late 1960 and had met at the Cedar Bar the year before. He essentially leaves before the money has come through. So he, he leaves counting on getting a fellowship and he heads to London and from London to Paris and from Paris to Ibiza, where he will spend about a year and from Ibiza is able to travel a few other places like North Africa. But I think to hear him talk about it, it really is in order to be able to just make this pilgrimage to see the great works that are driving him to produce. To hear his wife, Carol, talk about it, it's also about getting him sort of to a place where he can feel more free, free to create. You know, I think for as much as New York can feel like it is a place where people can flourish, it can also feel like a place that is that presents a lot of, of obstacles, distractions. So it really is almost a scholarly trip for him. And Carol will always talk about how churches, you know, he just he loves to see painting in situ in some of these, you know, the great architectural spaces in Europe. So understanding art, some of the artists he he emulates, like spatially, I think is a big part of that. And you see that play out in some of the ways the compositions sort of morph. And you know, there are some that almost look like ceiling frescoes in, in terms of the way that the, the energy in them works. So he spends basically two years <laughs> painting, and you'll see many of the paintings inscribed on the back with the city that they were made in. So you're able to at least understand, you know, what he painted in Paris, what he painted in Spain. In Spain, he and Carol had a wonderful place in the old town where they essentially lived in a cave. And so, again, thinking about the ways that that environment contributes to some of the tropes that you already see in his work, the cave, the sense of kind of these claustrophobic spaces with these gaping <laughs> sort of holes that feel very sinister. It's a place that turns out to be, you know, I think 
a good one for him. He has an exhibition in Ibiza in 1963 and sort of becomes part of this Ibiza group of artists. You know, one of the things that's really constant across Thompson's oeuvre is that he presents figures in a pretty consistent way, beginning to end. How does he paint or represent figures, and why do you think he, I don't know, simplifies and flattens them in the way that he does? Yeah, and it's great that you say figures, because it's very rarely a single figure, in any work. So, you know, I think that fearful insider number two is, again, something of an anomaly for that singularity. It is striking how much the figure deforms at times, too. You know, I think he it's so thoroughly destabilizing that I don't even talk about the figures as necessarily sexed or I think people ascribe, you know, racial identity to what feels to me like a very fluid language, figure language. There are fussy moments that feel very odd. I was just looking at a painting where he, he you know, he put the buttons in on the suit of, of one figure in this composition that's based on Seurat's Grand Jatte. And it's just, it jumps out at you when there are those moments where he is attentive to detail because he's so successful in the absence of that. They're almost jarring, those moments of kind of fussy experimentation or something. So I think, you know, for me, the real intertext for his understanding of what the figure becomes is Goya. And you know, I think looking at the work that he makes in Ibiza when he really bears down and tackles Goya fittingly while in Spain, those works where he pushes a figure, if we can even call it that, to the you know furthest extreme by combining, you know, fusing together multiple elements of a a Goya composition to make this sort of bulbous, amoebic shape, who's nevertheless a kind of protagonist in a composition. I mean, it's sort of, it really feels to me like, how much can you sort of break a, a kind of figural narrative through this deformation. And I think that's, you know, similarly what he's trying to do with nature. I think nature for him is a space where, you know, he's testing to see how unreal you can make it while still preserving aspects of its appearance. So there's no light per se, you know, things read as shadows, but they don't really because they read as colors, you know, plainer colors. The horizon line functions very oddly, so I think it's it's a similar process for the figure put through put through his you know his sort of prismatic talent. Thompson's figures are super flat; they're pretty much always monochromatic, except for their hair. <laughs> they are just staggeringly consistent. They substantially kind of come out of fauvism and, 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 you know, in terms of that lightless nature, single light source or lightless nature you were describing a moment ago, it's fascinating to see how quickly and how richly Thompson embraces, absorbs, thoroughly riffs on fauvism. Why do you think 
or why did fauvism interest him? Why why did that palette, that flatness, that way of making art attract him? Yeah, and I think you you reminded me in your phrasing of something that the painter Robert Colescott wrote. He wrote an essay that looked at William Johnson and Bob Thompson's work. And in, he leads into Thompson by talking about Johnson and makes a distinction when he says he's talking about, you know, what, what primitivism means or does not mean. And he says of Johnson's figures that they were not flat, but they were flattened. <laughs> and I think that's another kind of useful way to understand the, you know, it is a kind of, it's a sort of a painterly refusal of, right, some of the the most academic <laughs> lessons of painting that we see in the flattening that, that Thompson achieves. And I think it explains some of why he is drawn to the fauves, you know, the heat. People talk often about the heat that his paintings generate. They use that word. Frank Bowling uses that word in the late 1960s. He talks about them having their own personal heat. And they really do kind of crackle. And, you know, I think I'm also thinking of Gauguin and, you know, another sort of moment of sensory cross-wiring because Gauguin talks about color as the language of the listening eye. And, you know, I think, how do you generate heat? You generate heat through friction. In Thompson, it's, it's color, it's narrative, it's formal, you know, compositional friction, it's the chromatic intensity, the juxtaposition, the edges. So moments when things overlap or are juxtaposed. And, you know, for me, it becomes, it's, they're, they're inextricable. The, the kind of, you know, content and the form, how he pressures what we read as touch or maybe just plainer points of contact in the compositions. And I think those sort of disjunctions, that misdirection, the moments of like crudeness that feel in some cases like misdirection. I think of misdirection is, is also a part of his approach. So paint handling that can feel very rough alongside something that feels incredibly controlled. And there's a wonderful film that shows him. We showed it in at some of the venues. You may have seen it at the high. It was available, I think, on an iPad. I can't remember. But a film that shows him painting the only video footage we have by Dorothy Levitt Beskind. And she, she shows him with this incredibly loose <laughs> grip on the paintbrush, it's almost, it's sort of, he's, he's painting with his left hand and it's, it's incredible to see how hard it must be to be that <laughs> kind of loose with the brush. So I think those are all some of the reasons the fauves feel important. And, you know, Gauguin, I think, is there in so many places. And I think, you know, even the sort of painting conditions that Gauguin faced in, you know, as, as someone in, in a kind of self-imposed exile are not unlike Thomas Thompson's nomadic sort of situations as he bounced around Europe.
you know, for all of Thompson's mining of fauvism for flatness, for palette, for rendering objects in a single color, all that stuff, probably his greatest crib for Matisse is his blue nudes. You know, Matisse's first, eh, maybe not first, but nearly first major post-fauve painting is, of course, his 1907 blue nude memory of Biskra, which is, of course, uh, an African nude, an imperial you know, the, 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 the European nude going imperial as, as Matisse himself was, both on that trip in 1907 and, and later in his career. And Thompson seems to have picked up on that, or perhaps Thompson was picking up on the source of, a source of Matisse's blue nude, which was um, early 20th century photographs made in Northern Africa that had a blue tint to them. In the catalog, Adrian Childs argues that Thompson was one of the first black artists to devote the majority of his pictures to addresses of European art. And we're, and, and we've talked about Fauvism and, and Gauguin, but boy, there are a zillion other ways because Thompson was a wonderful and relentless synthesizer and updater of ideas from European modernism and maybe pre-modernism. So I wanted to raise a couple of the artists, issues, topics, tropes that Thompson does over and over again in his work and, and maybe ask you to tell us why he engaged and updated them. And I wanted to start with St. George and the Dragon. Why does Thompson love St. George and the Dragon and how does he make use of it to his own ends? I think it just bears noting that there's really no subject that he only treats once. <laughs> I think I continue to be amazed by the number of variations on a subject and this the subtlest of modifications are sometimes made. So any, in any case, I think it's just that is a gesture of kind of a compulsive repetition that feels very important. I don't always know what he achieves with these sort of adjustments or interventions, but St. George is one that he he returns to many times and in a number of different ways. So sometimes it is as he strips so much away that it is really only the figure of uh, George and his horse. So there's a small work at the Hirschhorn that is maybe eight inches by five inches and um, is simply that. And then in the exhibition, we showed a work on paper and a painting from 1961 where you, you more of the drama <laughs> plays out in a much closer response to the, the Tintoretto painting on the subject. I think in Thompson's hands, right, the, the sort of dragon figure is one that kind of leaves the frame, right? The dragon appears not only in his his mythological subjects, but elsewhere. So you see this hulking kind of monster dragon form in a few places in the, a 1959 painting in The Hangings, in a few other 1960 sort of, you know, more pastoral paintings. So in some ways, he's looking at that as a subject, a creaturely force before he's turned to the mythology in which it is one of the central actors, which I think is interesting too. So these are, this is the vehicle for, 
for the device that he's already started to use. I think this was, you know, mythology for him is so much about like the archetypes of our cultural formation in the West and the the ways that these, I think, are known. Just his, he does such a wonderful job of sort of making us look anew at stories that we know, whether or not they've come down to us, you know, through through Christianity, through literature. But I think making us sort of aware of the things that underwrite our civilization. And so, you know, his responses sometimes take things in a direction of absurdity. <laughs> like there's a, you know, a way that the ridiculousness in some of the old master paintings, I think, becomes sort of laid bare in his response to it. The tensions, right, become almost like comical. <laughs> and the stakes, I think, it becomes for him a pictorial kind of problem. And I really appreciate some of the ways that in in sort of simplifying, in alighting, in again, kind of pulling out and reducing the story to, you know, it's, it's sort of most atomic form. He shows us things about what we have all come to just accept as, you know, great masterpieces of European painting. So these, these contests, right, the St. George and the Dragon is one instance, and you see this again and again, where he really takes violence and makes it he blunts it because he sort of removes weapons. So, you know, it's always embodied violence. It's figure acting upon figure, person to person. And I think you see that, you know, again and again in terms of the the, the struggle. Yeah. The teeth of the dragon are always ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or, or the teeth of the animal, if it's another animal, are always ridiculous. And Judith Wilson <laughs> spoke about it being almost closer to some of the comic monsters of the moment in the 1950s, you know, more Godzilla-like than anything else. And, you know, I think that's another, that's another thing that people might have picked up on. Goya. Thompson does Goya a lot. Why and how does Thompson make use of Goya? Yeah. And he's certainly not alone in this, right? But, you know, for me, what's I'm always interested in who the artists are who are kind of part of his imaginary and who isn't. So, you know, I think about the fact that during his time in Spain, he's not looking, to my knowledge, at, let's say, Velazquez. You know, and he's not necessarily looking at Goya's paintings as much as he's looking at his prints. And so there's something liberatory there, maybe in responding to the caprichos as the prince and, you know, in his imagination, sort of taking the, the grayscale of and the tonality of prince and feeling like he can really pass it through his his palette. I think Goya was an incredibly <laughs> contested figure under Franco. And so... Thompson is there at a moment when he sees claims being laid to Franco on the part of the fascist regime and on the part of Republicans, and everyone wants Goya to be theirs. So, 
he understands that the multiple political agendas that are attached to this artist, you know, and fundamentally, this is someone who is like Thompson sort of poised at this, this kind of precipice, you know, this position between enlightenment and romanticism between right, the sensual and the, the rational. And I think he just holds so much possibility formally, you know, and, and in terms of the morality of the satire that he produces. So I just feel like it must have been like, I mean, I can't think of a, a better kind of partnership artistically than the two of, of them coming together. Not always, but boy, sometimes it seems like darn near always. Thompson's pictorial space is pastoral. His space in terms of its composition within the rectangle, in terms of its depth within the picture, and of course in, tree, in, in, in terms of rivers and grass and trees. Why is he so interested in the pastoral? Yeah, I think it is, right, it, it is the pastoral, but it is a pastoral that is fractured in many cases, you know, so something we all think about Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe by Manet as being, you know, sort of a representative of the, again, the kind of disunity <laughs> of the, the figures in this space. And I think for him, you know, the moments in paintings that really interest me are ones where there's not necessarily anything that is unsettling compositionally. So we, we talked about places, I think, where there's something, you know, very, that materializes that's very much a threat, a monster, figures that are pointing at one another, you know, with outstretched hands that sort of feel threatening. I think the moments where there's just a figure hanging from a tree sideways in a pastoral, you know, the Cezannean bather sort of moments where things feel ritualistic, but somehow and, and totally inaccessible to us. But there is a kind of unsettling quality that inheres. That is the, <laughs> it's sort of the anti-pastoral and it's a place where no one is laboring ever. So I think that's another sort of conscious choice that he makes. This is not an agrarian nature for the most part. There's not harvesting, you know, even in a take that he does on Peter Bruegel, the elders, the harvesters, his painting is entitled Harvest Rest. And the figures who are working are gone. <laughs> you see only the sleeping figures. So, you know, I think, yeah, this, this question about what nature holds, I think you see tremendous intimacy sometimes in the ways that people relate to the space, but the space is always outdoors, even if it feels like it's very architectonically so. I was going to ask you about Thompson's use of the cross and the crucifixion, uh, subject. Um, but we talked about Gauguin a little bit, and I think that Thompson's crosses and crucifixions are closer to Yellow Christ in Buffalo than they are to, you know, Calvary. 
and, and so I'm going to count us as having done that, to ask about something much weirder. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Thompson loved birds. Boy, did he like painting birds. There's Bird Party from 1961. There's The Judgment from 1963 in, in Brooklyn. There, there are birds being hugged by people. There are birds flying over people. There are birds kind of hiding in landscapes. There are a heckin' lot of birds. So obviously one possible reason is Max Ernst doesn't feel like an adequate explanation. What did Thompson find and love and really get kind of puckish about when it came to birds? I know. I want to hear what you... Well, I'll, I'll tell you what I think, but I also <laughs> want to hear what you think because it is... It, far and away, that is the question that everyone <laughs> asks always. And I really don't feel like there's a good answer. I feel like in some ways he baits you because there's one interview that he gives with a graduate student of Meyer Shapiro's and there's an extended transcript of the interview in her thesis. And then it's published in sort of excerpted form in the Harvard Review, where he talks about birds, <laughs> and he talks about birds and freedom. And it really just feels like he's sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a red herring <laughs> in some ways. And it's one that has stuck. And so I think I try to think instead about birds as a kind of formal device and what does it allow him to accomplish formally he of course is also taking all manner of you know hybrid winged creature from goya so but he's already thinking about birds so there's a painting that was recently at auction that had been in the collection of ulford vilka who was his instructor at the University of Louisville, and then became, as it happens, the first director at the University of Iowa Museum. So this painting had been given to Vilka by Thompson. It's from 1958, and it's called The Chase. And it is a figure, a kind of block-headed figure on a beach with its fingers, again, ambiguously, sort of softly, or <laughs> about to be kind of hurtful as it catches a bird. And so is it gingerly holding the bird, a seagull it looks like, or is it about to somehow, you know, imperil this creature? And, you know, I think for me, that was fascinating to understand that in 1958, when he's having this artistic sort of series of epiphanies, finding his people in Provincetown, he understands himself, again, if you think about it in terms of self-portraiture, in relationship to this bird. <laughs> but is he, is he the figure? Is he the bird? The idea of the chase and this sort of feeling that the chase, is the chase, again, about to sort of be on because you've missed it? Or is it, is it the moment of kind of closing your grips on the wings of the bird? So the bird is there before his, his painting really takes a turn away from that kind of realism. And I think it means so many things in, and it props up in so many places. You know, often you'll see the, I think it's easy to spot the large sort of bird figures in Bird Party, of course, this kind of balletic, like, choreography of creatures. But they're elsewhere, and they're 
composed very differently. There's a way that you'll see them sometimes in the margins of the paintings, standing much larger than everything else, and almost more cartoonish in the way that their heads are rendered. You know, there are moments when he's clearly taking something like the drapery of a tent in a Poussin painting, and he's turning it into a bird. So the, in Goya, it will be a kind of wedge of dark shadow that becomes a bird looming over a scene. So I think of it as, is it somehow compositional solution? You know, what are the, the sort of, what does it do <laughs> to the rest of the image? More than thinking about it iconographically as having these associations, I guess. I again, I just really think that he wants you to see the cherubs in the sky in you know in this Tintoretto painting because he's now turned them into these kind of comic <laughs> bird forms. So, what do you make of them? <laughs> I, well, you're very kind to ask. I mean, this is both an answer and a not. I, th I, I came to think of the birds in Thompson's work like I think of the fish in Max Beckman's work, which is, I think, substantially in line with the way you describe Thompson's birds. They're, they aren't always one thing. They're a favorite painterly bit of brainy fun. Sometimes they are embraced, like literally, by the figures in the paintings as they are in, in as, they're, as with fish in Beckman. And Beckman scholars, you know, have... <laughs> spent decades trying to come up with a unified theory of the fish. <laughs> and I don't think anyone's ever come up with one that everybody likes. And I think probably the same thing is true of Thompson. Scholars could come up with many different attempts at a unified scholarly of Thompson's birds, and and it will still not be adequate. It still won't quite fit. And so I, you know, while I do think there's a Max Ernst thing there that I can't quite put my finger on, I think ultimately it's more, it's broader than just an engagement with a single artist. I think it's maybe a, a way of addressing all those damned wing pooty in Italian paintings and birds in the Hitchcockian sense all at once. But it is, it is a fun thing to, <laughs> to muse on. I wanted to close by asking you about one of my favorite features of the catalog. And we'll have an image of this on manpodcast.com because I, it's an image I can take with my cell phone. What are the end papers of the catalog and why did you use them? Oh, well, I am grateful that I could use them. <laughs> I had heard a rumor about an unfinished Thompson painting on the reverse of a painting by Rosalind Drexler. So having acquired a painting by Rosalind Drexler for the Colby College Museum of Art, this news then somehow came to me. And I inquired, found this to be the case. And through her gallery, I was able to confirm <laughs> that the painting was in a particular collection and could acquire these wonderful high-resolution images of it. The story goes that when he left for Europe in 1961. And this when, is, when Bob Thompson left for when Europe. When Bob Thompson left for Europe in 1961. And it sounds like this was always the case. He, he really just sort of picked up and left. 
and with incredible generosity, you know, offered whatever was left in the studio to to his friends. In this case, Rosalind Drexler helped herself to a number of canvases, and this was this being one of them. So it, he did the same thing. I understand when he left Ibiza and friends of his who were on the island sort of packed up <laughs> and shipped and saved many more pieces of artwork that were left uh, behind. But for me, this was so much about the unfinished business of this artist. And, you know, I think one of the questions that also often gets asked is why he remains kind of underknown, you know, the Whitney the incredible work of Judith Wilson Pates and Thelma Golden on the 1998 Whitney book and exhibition really sort of recovered him and brought him fully, I think, back <laughs> to life. But nevertheless, as, as you know, we've noted, he's not someone who, despite being collected by major institutions, he's not someone whose work you often encounter in the galleries. And I think you know, one of the reasons for that is that while this is remarkably mature work, he's still a student. I think he would still think of himself as still, you know, very young, very much working through things. And, you know, he wasn't painting for an audience. He has a show in 1965 at Martha Jackson Gallery that will be the big kind of coming out party in some ways. It breaks attendance records at her gallery, but he's been painting for himself. And so, you know, for me to see, first of all, a very large canvas to understand how he started, because we have film footage of him drawing with markers later and working that way before he puts in the, the color paint. But to see the most sort of ambitious <laughs> elements of the painting already here and know that he walked away from something felt like it was a way of just expressing the incredible fire burning within this person and you know his his refusal to be too attached to any one thing or any one subject you know and maybe that's why he's able to return to them again and again because he just keeps moving on so I loved the idea of having this be the end papers to show something that is the back of a painting but is a pa another painting also I think captures kind of his contrariness or his <laughs> his inclination to sort of go against the grain. I love it. It's um, It makes the catalog an, an all the more <laughs> special object. Diana Tweet, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Organized by and on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through January 8th, Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund, is the first large-scale survey of the Columbus, Georgia-based collection, highlighting a wide-ranging group of photographers diverse in gender, race, ethnicity, and region. It features 125 photographs by 73 artists, including Gordon Parks, Sheila Pre-Bright, Mark Steinmetz, Michael Stipe, and William Christenberry, and asks questions that identify and complicate conventional ideas of an American South and Southern photography. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about Reckonings and Reconstructions, 
or visit AthensGA.com to plan a trip. California artist Alexis Smith is widely known for working in collage, layering quotes from film and literature with movie posters, album covers, advertisements, and newspapers. She highlights the narratives embedded in our culture, asking us to think critically about how they inform our sense of self and our society. Now, through February 2022, immerse yourself in Smith's collection of images and objects, the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego La Jolla campus. From intimate artists' books to room-sized installations, visitors will witness film, literature, pop culture, and Hollywood reinvented. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. Welcome back. Next up, Allegra Pacenti returns to the program to discuss Picasso-cut papers, an examination of artworks Pablo Picasso made by cutting paper. The exhibition features work Picasso made between his childhood and the very end of his career. Pacenti co-curated the show with Cynthia Burlingham. The exhibition is on view at The Hammer through December 31st. The catalog was published by The Hammer and Delmonico Books. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $45. Allegra Pacenti, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me, Tyler. It's good to be back. How did George Brock, evidently, apparently, perhaps, prompt Pablo Picasso's experiments in cut and I guess sometimes folded paper? Well, Picasso and Brock met in 1907 and they formed this unique relationship that was based on both friendship and creative competition. And there was... From then on, of course, a lot of back and forth going on that brought about, famously brought about the birth of Cubism and of the papier collé and with both of that, the fragmentation of images. What is not so well known is that there was also a conversation going on about what we describe in this exhibition as cut papers, papier découpé. And... We know from a letter that Picasso wrote to Braque, Picasso is complimenting Braque on his papery techniques, he calls them, which are in fact include the making of paper sculptures, which Braque, we know from various other documents, was making models, paper models, to facilitate his painting compositions. Picasso claims to take that on and, and, and actually does take that cue on and starts making his own paper sculptures. And the culmination of that is the great guitar that is now at MoMA, which is the first standalone sculpture in paper that Picasso makes. And he makes a series of these guitars in the period between 1912 and 1914. Picasso's takes this cue from Braque, is obviously looking at what Braque is doing, but takes it a step further. And while Braque was making them as preparatory tools for paintings and papier collé, Picasso really takes that further, develops that whole concept further, and turns his paper sculptures into independent works of art. And his guitar and a whole series of other objects that he makes out of paper, ingeniously tied together 
with string and glued together in parts and they're complete constructions, three-dimensional drawings modeled in paper. Anne Umland's 2011 exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art of Picasso's guitars came to mind a lot when I read the catalog for your show. It's kind of, in a way, the prelude to your show. Absolutely. And that, I would say that both that book and that exhibition were groundbreaking historically for Picasso, I think, but were a real inspiration to me. And I I definitely took a lot of lead from the research that was made in preparation for that exhibition. And of course, the great lacuna in this exhibition is the guitar. Unfortunately, it is so fragile and, and has been shown a lot in the past, but it's just impossible to take out of New York. We have the great fortune of being able to see it at MoMA, but we found other ways to represent it in this exhibition and, of course, in the book. It's it's one of the anchors to the argument of cut papers. There is a guitar in your show with a table. Uh, we may come to it here in a bit. The first kind of post-guitar Picasso cut paper work, kind of the work that is in, is in your show right after kind of an introductory section on, on, on a more youthful Picasso, is a summer of 1914 work called Composition with Shell. You described a moment ago how Brock was using cut paper to help him inform compositions, and Picasso took a step beyond that. Is this work an example of that, and what do we see in this work? Yes, absolutely. He takes these elements out of cut papers and occasionally these elements remain independent elements so standalone lamp bulbs for instance or a pipe and they become this sort of vocabulary of objects within his studio they sort of tell their own stories but in other cases these cut forms pears or apples as I said, light bulbs, pipes, find their way into, sort of trickle into collages and papier collé. And so that work that you're describing is one such work. I love it for its simplicity. And it's actually almost all held together by a single pin. And I became slightly obsessed by pins while I was working on this show because I kept I kept finding these these pins in, in what I was looking at and read somewhere that Picasso during this period uh, was in a relationship with a woman called Eva Guel and she worked a lot as a seamstress and apparently had a lot of pins lying around. So one story is that the pins found found their way into, into Picasso's work quite easily. But interestingly, especially in a work like, like the one you're mentioning with the shell, the pin is not just a tool to keep the papers together. It actually has quite a strategic compositional placement within the work. It sort of breaks the the curves of the shell and echoes the lines of the cut papers beside it. So something that might seem very random, like the pinning of these papers, which were essentially are three sheets of paper, 
looks so facile to Picasso's hand, but in reality, it turns into, you know, a fundamental part of the work of art itself. And I love that about these types of work is that they look incredibly easy and simple, and yet they're born out of great complexity, I think. In this particular example, there's also graphite within the drawing. So there's cut paper, a pin, and a shade of graphite. And of course, the shadow is a very important element in all of this exhibition. I think it's very much about cast shadows. So the fact that he's drawn in the shadow of the shell with graphite, just slightly around the contour of the shell, I think is an important element, both of the work, but also of the whole argument of the play of shadows within the discussion of cut papers in this exhibition. There are two sections of the show that deal with different, I don't know, forms of shadows. Do shadows have form? One, <laughs> one, one section on shadow papers and one section on shadow plays. Let's start with shadow papers. What are shadow papers? Well, the shadow, shadow papers is a term that Cindy and I came sort of, it's not a, it's, it, it's not an official Picasso term, but we were trying to. It is to... now. <laughs> <laughs> the exhibition is a form of retrospective and it is more or less loosely chronological. We did want to group and sort of tell the story of various types of cut papers within that loose chronology because there are a variety of different types of cut papers that are worthy of independent discussions. And so shadow papers are the works that we felt were very reminiscent, for instance, of Greek and Roman pottery and of uh, bigger painting. And they depend on the contours of silhouettes rather than the modeling of form. And it's the challenge is to create an expressive story by just having contour lines. And Picasso achieves it, for instance, in one of the, there's a, a lithograph that's based on cut papers on the circus and called the circus of 1945. And there's a mixture of influences here. I think partially it recalls the corridas and the sort of a sort of a mixture between a circus and a, a corrida, but also really reminiscent of ancient Greek vase painting and the storytelling through silhouettes. We included in shadow papers more three-dimensional works if moving on in his career when he started to work on much larger scale. I'm thinking of works around 1958 and 1962, where he's studying the positive and negative forms of figures that then are transposed to much larger paintings, like the series he did on Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe. He's cutting out forms, figurative forms, out of cardboard. And one thing that I found out through this exhibition is that Picasso never wasted any paper. He used every single little slice that came out of his cuttings. So nothing was discarded. So if he so the shadow papers later on in his career 
take on this more fully three-dimensional effect. That three-dimensionality that comes out of paper, you come very close to arguing, informs his folded metal sculptures, everything from kind of the work with Julio Gonzalez to uh, the head of a woman's sculptures, you know, one of which, for example, is in downtown Chicago. Is it fair to say that you think that Picasso's cutting papers is then generative of lots of other things? Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I think comes out very distinctly, at least for me, in this exhibition is that there are two Picassos. <laughs> There's one Picasso who works independently and thrives in his studio and makes these incredible sort of independent paper sculptures and all forms of silhouettes and cut papers for his own private studio use. And then there's Picasso, the great collaborator. And there's this whole production that comes out of, especially in the 1950s and 60s, where he meets collaborators who allow him and, and sort of permit this creation of sheet metal sculptures, which is, I think, what you, the ones that you were referring to. Especially in the early 1960s, he makes over 100 sheet metal sculptures. He meets Joseph Maritiola, who was a, an exceptional welder and iron maker, and he perceives the great talents of Tiola. And by looking at him and studying his practice, he understands it fully and, more importantly, understands how to work with him and to use him to understand his own work. So what happens is that he may, he has now moved to Valory in the south of France. He has a larger studio, a larger platform, and, he's, and, and these cut papers really shift in dimension. There's a sort of leap uh, and a sense of extreme freedom now compared to the earlier cut papers. And he makes these, what I would call as paper models. And first, Thomas Jelinek, an English designer who he'd met, facilitates this first transformation into sheet metal. And then for a longer period, Tiola basically received the models, paper models, and transposed them into sheet metal. And the incredible characteristic of these works is that they required absolutely no sort of secondary supports. They are completely standalone. So whatever Picasso made on paper, he had to be very ingenious in the folds so that they, they could stand alone on. If they could stand alone in paper and cardboard, then Tula managed to make them stand alone in sheet metal. But it was because Picasso understood the materiality of the metal and because he'd studied Tiola so carefully that he knew how to make the paper models. And so there was this great conversation and, and, and collaboration happening with these two creators. And in fact, Picasso ended up making two models. One of them Tiola could use and ended up destroying in the making of the sculpture. And the other one was always kept intact for Picasso's archive. 
But even more interestingly is that these works were not just models. Some of them never even made it to become sculptures. And so Picasso really considered both the models and the paper versions as independent works of art, just as the sheet metal sculptures were. They, they sort of had their own independent existence. The sheet metal was then painted white. So there's this wonderful sort of circle of going from paper to metal, but then really making it look back to paper, taking it back to paper. So even once it has the solidity of the sculpture, it maintains that wonderful lightness and sort of impermanence of paper. That kind of fluidity between medium and material distinguishes a lot of the work or characterizes a lot of the work in this show, including a body of work called the diurns, the diurn. They are a little tough to describe, but they're kind of a melding of media, this time paper and photography. I guess, what are they? And how or why might they have been informed by, of all things, Matisse's work at the Vaughn's Chapel? Oh, yes, that's something that I suggest in my, in my essay in the catalogue. Well, they are the culmination of Picasso's metaphor, me- metamorphosis of paper, I would say. This culmination, which comes sort of towards in the latter part of Picasso's life once he's really brought paper through many different transformations and he's really practiced versatility of paper and made paper do incredible things. He sort of challenged the materiality of paper in so many ways. But I think in in the portfolio diurne, he really brings it to another extreme. In the early 1950s, meets the photographer André Villiers. And just like he did with Tiola, he perceives and understands the great, great talent of Villiers and asks him to collaborate with him. And Villiers had an expertise in cameraless photography and um, they started working with a unique combination of papier découpé, papier collé and photograms, which is exactly that, photographs made without a camera on light sensitive paper. And there's a there's a wonderful sense of the bucolic world in these works. They represent myths and various sort of joyous subjects. Diurne uh, connects it, connects the series both literally and metaphorically to sunlight. Of course, all of these works would not be, could not have been made without sunlight, but they also re- represent very luminous subjects of, you know, dancing fauns. And they were made uh, through a very laborious process, brought to life, I should say, through a very laborious process of also, that also included found elements like silk and lace, pasta, there are even little pieces of pasta. And they have a wonderful transparency to them. There's this incredible, they're all suffused with fantasy and volatility. And there's this incredible sort of sense of transparency and lightness to them. 
And I think in a way that that does connect back to Matisse, the sort of use of transparency in the stained glass windows that Matisse had designed for his chapel, I think is, is, is quite comparable. Filtering light through the windows onto the walls of the chapel and onto, onto, the, onto the priests themselves. And there's a sort of performative aspect to Matisse's chapel that I think has a lot of echoes in Picasso's work. And of course, both this work and Matisse's work combine both artisanry, extremely skillful artisanry, and to some extent technology on the one hand, and illusion on the other. So I think, I think Dion is one place where one portfolio, I should precise that he made hundreds of these works, but that he chose 30 for the portfolio. But I think it's one place where there is a wonderful connection with the work of Matisse. Finally, Picasso made a whole bunch of cut paper birds. Why so many birds? <laughs> yes, that's a good question. There's a corner of birds in the installation. He made cut papers for many different reasons. There are many different functions. As I mentioned before, they were just independent sculptures that lived in his studio for most, mostly. I mean, he, these are, are, are very, very private works, the cut papers. They generally lived within his archive and in his studio. An important one, nonetheless, he signed and dated each one of them. As I said, he also made them as exploratory studies and models for fabricators. But then the other great reason he made them were as gifts and games. And many of them were made for his children and grandchildren. And many of the birds that you see in the catalog and in the exhibition were made for either Claude or Paloma or Maya. Many are from Maya's collection. And I think they were a way of just a, a very spontaneous way of performing for his for his children. I make an argument in in my essay that there is a there is a strong connection to theater, to puppetry, to shadow theater in this type of work. And I think that plays an important part in these birds that you mentioned. I think there's a lot of magic in them. They seem to float. They, you know, they're suspended and, and there's a lot of character in them as well. They actually differ in character, interestingly enough, even though there is often no color in them. They're just made, you know, purely out of, out of paper. And so, yes, games, but also theatrical conceits. And, and you know, there are a lot of birds generally in, in Picasso's work, so in all forms. And it's interesting that they, they come alive in the cut paper form as well. Allegra Pacenti, thanks very much. Thank you, Tyler. It's always really good to speak to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. 
The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.